On this day, 27th of March, 1627 or 1625, Charles I was crowned king. Now it was a mediocre reign and it all ended badly, at least for him and for most of the country. Now that kingship only mattered in his own day and generation. It has of no interest and importance to us today. What is more, it had absolutely no interest to all the generations who lived before him. And in addition, it had no interest or importance to all the nations outside of this kingdom. What a contrast with Martin Luther. A lone individual who discovers the gospel, his life is altered, his preaching is changed, and that gospel changed the nation. And as the gospel spread, it changed one nation after another. And that gospel still changes people. That gospel still matters. Why? Why? Well, there are two immediate reasons. First reason is because the gospel declares that Jesus Christ is the only saviour of sinners. And the second reason, because the Lord Jesus Christ possesses the power of an endless life. In other words, the efficacy of redemption and regeneration transcends generations and nations. The unlimited power of God over time. Now in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 26, Paul states that we need a saviour who is holy, harmless, and undefiled. And then immediately tells you in chapter 8, verse 1, that we have such a saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in verse 28, he says that uh, we not only have a saviour, but we have one who is the Son. So it is a glorious Savior. And so Paul then says in chapter 8, verse 1, that I will summarize everything I have said from chapter 1, verse 1, right through to chapter 7, verse 28. But here's the interesting thing. The summary fills all of chapter 8, all of chapter 9, and half of chapter 10. So you can see it's a comprehensive summary. In other words, he understands uh, that maybe we haven't been paying a great deal of attention all those seven chapters, so he will repeat some things and add some things, and he will also explain other dimensions. So as we look at this 8th chapter, verses 1 to 6, we do so under this heading, the excellent 
ministry of Christ. The excellent ministry of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was a minister. He was a preacher. He had a ministry on earth. But there's more to the ministry of Christ than the short time he ministered on earth. And so we must listen to what Paul says. First of all, the surpassing greatness of Christ. The surpassing greatness of Christ. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is an enthroned high priest. And this is so important, he has spent three chapters telling it, and he's going to spend a few more chapters telling it. Because what he really means is, your salvation rests upon, is founded on, this priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is enthroned in the heavens and he is enthroned with majesty. He's on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Our risen, ascended Savior is exalted. We are to be captivated not only with the cross, not only with the resurrection, not only with the ascension. We are to be captivated that our suffering Savior is glorified. He's the enthroned high priest. In other words, Jesus Christ is the triple cure for our sin. The triple cure for our sin. In other words, he is a priest to reconcile us to God. He is a prophet to speak to us the words of life. And he is a king to subdue and rule over us. As our prophet, he proclaims to us that he is the only saviour of sinners. As our prophet, that is the singular message of Christ the sinners. That sinners must go to him in order to be accepted. We must be accepted in the Balaam. As our prophet, he declares his kingly rule. On the one hand, he teaches us that he's the saviour of sinners. On the other, he declares to us that he is our king. This is very important, isn't it, in our contemporary age. 
So all of these ideologies, all these institutions and quangos, all of these uh, people who are all over us and many aspects of life, and they're all trying to beat us into submission to them and to remake us into their own image. That's what they all want to do. They want us all simply to be lackeys and just, you know, keep paying your taxes and say nothing. Now we are your, we are servants. We are to be serfs. And then the church comes along and says, now just hold it there. We have many masters indeed, and we doff our cap to all of them, but we have a king. A king who rules over us. A king who is also our prophet to teach us. He will tell us what we shall and shall not do. And because he is our priest, we are not our own. We are bought at a price. Understand why the gospel can be a dangerous message and uh, at certain times throughout church history. And there have been times the gospel has been deemed to be almost revolutionary. Not that we did anything against the law, but simply stood our ground. And in the gospel account, we read that as the Lord ascended, he did something quite remarkable. He blessed his disciples. In other words, his last ministerial act of his earthly ministry. Well, you may say, well, never paid much heed to that before, so what is its significance? What it says to the disciples and through them to us. The Lord Jesus Christ did not stop blessing his people. His ascension means he will always bless his people. So the very last visible act of the Savior as he ascended was, I shall continue to bless my people. That's why you see you need to read the language of Acts chapter 1 so very slowly and carefully of what Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that, he threw the Holy Ghost and so on. So the work of the Saviour carries on. But here we need to pause on that point. To give you a quotation from Matthew Henry. While he was blessing them, he parted from them to intimate that his parting did not put an end to his blessing them. The book of Acts tells you that as he ascended, they reached that point where he could no longer be seen. A cloud received him out of their sight. Why does that matter? Because that immediately tells you two things. First of all, it reveals the glory of our King. And all through the Old Testament, you will see that combination of clouds and glory, of clouds and deity. The Saviour 
being received up into the clouds, indicates the deity, the glory, the excellence of our Saviour. And secondly, it proves the Word did indeed become flesh. And that even though deity was in flesh, the Lord, as both God and man, ascended up into heaven. Now that takes a bit of thought about it, doesn't it? You can understand deity ascending to heaven. But that humanity ascends to heaven. The Lord is God in flesh takes his humanity up into glory. It simply serves to prove that the word was made flesh. So you have here uh, that glorious greatness, the surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then secondly we know as we go through verse 2 onwards, the glory of the true tabernacle. The glory of the true tabernacle. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So here we must ask some simple questions. First question is, what is the Lord Jesus Christ doing now? Well, verse 2 says, that he is ministering in the true tabernacle. Now this tabernacle on earth, Paul says, was but a pattern of the heavenly. Verse 5. See that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mind. And this word pattern gives you our English word type. Hence, of course, we speak of typology. But it's also translated in our Bibles as figure, fashion, form, an example, reinforcing and explaining at the same time the importance of this type. The tabernacle was a type, a visible earthly type of the heaven. Exodus 25. We must turn to for a moment. Exodus 25 and in verse 40. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mind. So all the details, even down to all the pins and all the knobs and everything else that was decreed and ordered. Every detail of that tabernacle mattered. And even those who made the various items had to have special skills in order to make them. Do you think they would have done a rough job and said, oh, well, it's only a tent after all. Sure, anybody can make a tent and uh, anyone can hang curtains and anyone can, you know, sew things together. 
You think they would have talked like that? Not at all. God said to Moses, down to the smallest detail, I've given you the blueprint. You must do it all according to the pattern. I showed it to thee on the mount, because there on the mount, the glory came down. You were taken up, as it were, into heaven. So this tabernacle is heaven on earth. Then, of course, you remember when the Lord died, the veil in the temple was torn apart, indicating that at that precise moment, the earthly tabernacle, the temple, no longer mattered. You know, of course, what happened? The Jews loved their temple. They worshipped the temple. They swore by the temple. But after the cross, it had become an affront. So the Lord sent the Romans, didn't he? They destroyed her. All that's left is a wall. I'm not even sure if the wall that's left is the whole thing, but anyway, they came and they destroyed it, thereby demonstrating the cross was enough. And it served its function. A second question arises, what kind of ministry has the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, immediately we can say it's a priestly ministry because of what we're told in verses 3 and 4. We're told that every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. So if our Lord is a priest, a high priest, he too must make an offering, a sacrifice. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. But here there is a contrast in verse 4. If he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Because there already exist priests. So all of those Old Testament priests and all of those Old Testament high priests, one after the other, if the Lord had not come and done his work, they would still carry on. This is the folly of Romanism. They have all these priests. These priests are all magic. They're magicians. They do all kinds of wonderful things. That's what human cleverness brings when you bypass the cross. But with Christ and his ministry, his priestly work, it is all swept away. Because the Lord offered himself. So there is both Similarity and difference, isn't there? There's similarity in that as they had to offer, so he had to offer. But there's a difference. His one offering sweeps all the other offerings to one side. A superior high priest. That brings us to a third question. Why? Is it all necessary? Why on earth does Paul take so much time to tell you about these things? 
Well, I think the best answer to that question is in the larger catechism, question number 55, where we read, How doth Christ make intercession? Christ maketh intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily feelings. Well, we could just pause there for a moment, couldn't we? And the next couple of hours, just think about this connection, this link between the intercession of Christ and procuring quiet of conscience for us, notwithstanding daily feelings. We're all failures, my dear friends. Every single one of us in this congregation is a failure. We're all failures, from the youngest to the oldest. And no matter how far we advance in the Christian life, we still fail. And our conscience troubles us. What hope have we? The intercession of Christ. It goes on, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. Now, what a subject is that. The acceptance of our persons, we can kind of get that. But the acceptance of our services, everything we have done for the Lord is polluted with our sins. And you will hear the most incredible thing from Christ when we stand in glory. We don't deserve it, but it's going to happen. Well done, good and faithful servant. And you say, but Lord, I don't deserve such commendation. I don't deserve any reward at all because I stand in glory and see you in all your perfection. Everything I have ever done for you has been corrupted, tainted. With remaining indwelling sin. But you see, we are accepted in Christ and our services are accepted. Why is all this necessary? Well, if you forget the sermon, at least you'll remember Larger Catechism 55. Now, older theological works, as they deal with this whole matter of the Lord in heaven, they use an interesting word. They always refer to it as the session of our Lord Jesus Christ. The session of Christ. The word session is an old word. You know, it begins in the 14th century. Before that, it was in Latin. And it's a Middle English word. It simply means seated for a specific purpose. That's why we have a Kirk session. It is seated for a specific purpose. And the basis of it is Psalm 110, verse 4. Sit at my right hand. The sitting is the session of the Lord Jesus Christ. That act of sitting. 
The glory of the true tabernacle is the ministry of Jesus Christ, the session of the Lord in heaven. So when you get to heaven, when this earthly journey is over, I'm using the words of the gospel, you know, when angels come and take your soul to heaven, when you enter into heaven, what will we see? The session of the Lord Jesus Christ. That heavenly ministry of Christ. And then thirdly, the excellence of his ministry in verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. What is our Lord Jesus Christ? In one simple word, mediator. The mediator, as you know, is the one who stands between. How are we reconciled to God? By the mediator. In Christ, we are reconciled to the Father. Now, as you know, in theology, things can get quite complicated. And uh, I'm not a fan of things being complicated. I always like them simpler because, well, we really like them simple anyway, even, the, even if they are complicated and heavy and deep. And, uh, well, I still encourage you to read Edward because it is stretches your mind and we need that. But let's not make things complicated for the children this evening. What do we mean when we talk about mediator? Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 8, of Christ the Mediator. Paragraph 1, it pleased God in his eternal purpose. To choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and saviour of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, Unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be a seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So there you have his ordination to the office of mediator. Paragraph 2. His incarnation for the office of mediator. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Paragraph 3, can't do all the paragraphs, you can do the rest yourself. Paragraph 3 has qualifications for the office of mediator, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, 
having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and so on. And then paragraphs four to eight, that long section, the execution of the office of mediator. Paragraph four, the historical description. Paragraph five, or paragraph five, it's central operation. Paragraph five, it's historic commendations. It goes on through all these aspects of the Saviour's work. Paragraph 8. To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certain and effectively apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, and so on. He's the mediator. Thomas Goodman. The heart of Christ in heaven for poor sinners on earth. That's a better summary, isn't it? That's a wonderful summary. And that's what it means. One who is touched with our infirmities, who has compassion, our advocate, when we sin. Today in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ knows in his humanity, as well as in his deity, everything that happens to believers on earth. So we read in Revelation 2 and in verse 2, I know thy works and thy labour and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. Each time the Lord says, I know. Now, of course, we must be careful here. We must not entertain the notion that the Lord is still suffering in heaven. He's not. He suffered on earth. He suffered on the cross. He is not suffering in heaven. In heaven, we see the perfection of heavenly love and power displayed. You might be thinking in yourself, well, what does it all actually mean ultimately for myself? Well, the answer surely is this. The first thing Christ did for us was to pour out his Spirit upon the church. The session of Christ seen understood, experienced. So the church sings in the words of the psalmist. Psalm 45, verse 11. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thy him. That's what it ultimately means. The king desires the beauty. Why? He is our Lord. So we should worship him. When we think about the Saviour and throne, that ministry of Christ, yes, we worship the Father. Yes, we worship the Spirit. But we also worship the Lord. 
Well, let's come to some points of application. First of all, the beauty of Christ in the incarnation, ascension, and session. The beauty of Christ. We think of the beauty of Christ from every angle, don't we? The beauty of Christ in the incarnation. The wonder of it all. The beauty of Christ in his ministry. The beauty of Christ in his sufferings and death. The beauty of Christ in his resurrection. The beauty of Christ in his ascension. The beauty of Christ in his ministry from heaven. John Calvin says, comparing the revelation of God before the incarnation to a pencil sketch, now that Christ has come, we have the full revelation and color. So he describes the Old Testament revelation as a pencil sketch. And that's all filled in for us. We see it all in grand color. Paul, by inspiration, is explaining to you what all these Old Testament shadows mean. Their fullest and richest realization in the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the tabernacle? In a sense, it was heaven displayed on earth. What was the high priest? He was the mediator made visible before Israel. He went into the Holy of Holies. There he stood in heaven, as it were, interceding for God's people. His intercession. That they would not die, but that they would live. That they would enter into the promised land. The beauty of Christ. And all of these things. You know, we're far too vain and proud, aren't we? We, we love to look in the mirror, you know, pamper ourselves of all kinds of health spas and everything else to all make us all feel so young and beautiful and get all the skin nicely waxed and oiled and get all the hair all nicely in place. I'm not saying, by the way, you shouldn't wash your anything. I'm not saying. But uh, what the point I'm making is, you know, we spend an awful lot of time beautifying ourselves. Of all these journals and magazines, all these cosmetics, all designed to make us beautiful. But what about the Lord? Is he not beautiful? The beauty of Christ and his glory and his person and his work and his ministry. Here is a beauty that cannot be compared to anything in the world. It surpasses all earthly beauty. And then secondly and finally, the highest Christology possible. The highest Christology possible. We are required to see everything and understand everything that has been revealed to you as recorded in Scripture. We are required to know the Lord as fully as we can, as comprehensively as you are capable of understanding. 
the highest Christology. But I leave you with this question. Basic, simple question. What think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? May the Lord bless these things to your heart.